Well, as we've been tracking through John chapters 18 and especially 19 lately, even at his death, the Lord Jesus Christ had king written all over him, demonstrating mastery and sovereignty over his trials and over his sufferings and even over the moment of his death. Even the sign above his head read, King of the Jews, which may have been meant and mockery, but in God's providence, it was a holy laugh at the attempts of feeble men. And as the Apostle John continues with the narrative, it just becomes more and more apparent that he is concerned primarily with the gifts that the enthroned king is giving to his subjects. John's account is filled with such evangelistic fervor that John, while telling us of Christ's fate, cannot hold himself back from underlining and capitalizing and writing in big letters on billboards the significance of Jesus' death for his followers. In our relatively short passage this morning, we're going to come face to face with these gifts and we're going to see the efficiency of God's redemption for us in two ways. First, we're going to see how God does not waste one little bit of what happens to Jesus, not just before his death, but even after, to deliver to us a complete, overflowing redemption that spans the Old Testament and the New. And secondly, we will see how the efficiency of God is perfect using everything and wasting nothing, providing a redemption that doesn't just win righteousness for us, but even works in and with and through our own suffering for our greatest joy and for God's greatest glory. Little Christians, young theologians that are with us this morning, I just have one question for you. What does the blood and the water that we will read about coming from Jesus' side. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for you? What has Jesus given to you in these things? And are you receiving it? Are you believing it? This is the good news of John the Apostle as he tells us of our Savior who wastes nothing in saving his people from John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus... And saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you 
We come to you thirsty because we always come thirsty. And we come to you knowing that you hold for us the water of salvation, the water of, of the Spirit to cleanse us, to forgive us, but to quench our thirst as well and to impart to us and remind us the presence of your Spirit that is with us and in us in our hardship and our suffering, helping us see that Christ has borne our sufferings and is with us in them. Would you this morning encourage our hearts? Would you comfort our hearts? Would you convict us as you see fit through your word, producing gospel truth in us and gospel fruit? according to your will and for your glory and for our good. And we pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we've been looking forward to it for a while. Um, our family's about ready to move in just a few more weeks. And so for the first time in our marriage, actually... Ellen and I decided that this time around we're going to hire some movers. <laughs> it kind of, I mean, it kind of feels like the aristocratic approach, doesn't it, a little bit? Yes, let's bring the peasants in here. They can lift some heavy boxes. And when they're done, they can take the grain to market and fix the drawbridge. But we're going to do it because it's going to be August and it's going to be hot. But my wife, she is actually the most efficient person I've ever known. She's a force of nature when it comes to moving. Um, You could not stop my wife from rapidly and efficiently picking up our home. She's just a blur of red hair going from room to room, taping up boxes and labeling them. It's amazing to watch. Efficiency. Some of us are really, really good at it. Some of us are not. But God is the best. He wastes nothing in redeeming you. He leaves nothing left over in declaring it to you. And he uses everything in sanctifying you. We see, first of all, in our passage, the efficiency of God in delivering to his people a full and a complete redemption. And this is pictured most graphically for us after the Roman soldier pierces Jesus' side with a spear and blood and water come out in verse 34. And historically, there have been three major interpretations of this event by the church. But I don't think that these interpretations are at odds with one another. I don't think they're at war with one another. I don't think they're exclusive but rather they complement each other and present us with the truth that God is actually using a single event, even after the death of Jesus, to show us the abundance of his grace. Inside each of these interpretations, Jesus gives us gifts from his cross. In the first interpretation of the water and the blood, we find the doctrine of Jesus' humanity. We've emphasized it a lot through the Gospel of John. The very human blood coming out of a dead body verifies a very human Christ. John's Gospel is most likely being written in the late first century, probably pretty close to the timing of his letters, although maybe just a little bit before. 
But what this means is that many of the same theological concerns that we find in his letters are also being stressed in his gospel. In John's day, and especially into the whole second and third centuries, there arose a tendency to de-emphasize Jesus' humanity. There was a whole group of teachers that arose that were called docetics or docetists based on the Greek word meaning to seem or to appear. And they began to deny the full humanity of Christ, claiming that the Son of God only appeared or seemed to be human, but was really not. And we see John writing against such false teachers in 1 John 4, 1 through 3, and in 2 John verse 7, warning that anyone that denied the full humanity of Jesus was a false prophet and was not from God. And in our day, against the skepticism of the modern world that we live in, we as evangelicals find ourselves preaching and shouting and emphasizing and underlining the deity of Christ. Because most of the world accepts, in our day, that Jesus was real, a historical figure that breathed and walked around and did things. But the idea of Jesus as God? Come on. That's where they're ready to consider us a bunch of crazy people. So we find ourselves needing to emphasize the doctrine of Jesus' deity in our day, and rightly so. But in our attempt to preach his deity, often our danger is to neglect his humanity. And when we neglect Jesus' humanity, we do a lot more damage than merely giving a wrong answer to an important question on a theology test. Let me ask you this question. How do you know that God loves you? How do you know? Did God just give his people special ears so that we could just kind of hear him from up in heaven saying, I love you? No. God stepped down. Theologians call it the condescension of God. It's wrong for human beings to be condescending to one another, to treat someone else like they're stupid and like we're the teacher that's going to enlighten them on everything in a very prideful way. But God had to condescend. He had to get down on our level, take on our flesh, take on our souls and our bodily and our psychological weaknesses and speak words with syllables coming out of a mouth, speaking a known human language. And then perform deeds that we could see. Deeds that we could see and touch and taste and hear. Because we're human. And we don't come to knowledge any other way. How do we know that God demonstrates his own love for us except by this? That while we were still sinners, Christ the man died for us. And when we stop emphasizing the full humanity of Jesus, evangelicals can start to become condescending in a way that God isn't. We begin thinking that our job is to separate ourselves from the world in every way and look down on them from the battlements of our Christian subculture and shout at them, You know, you bunch of idiots, God loves you. I mean, can't you tell? Look at us. 
Can't you see the love of God shining through all the walls of protection that we've built around ourselves to keep you out? Instead, truly owning and living the doctrine of Jesus' humanity means that we go to them. It means that we are involved in ministries of mercy, adoption, and foster care, and imparting water, and food, and blankets, and medical care, and education to physical people that need physical love shown to them because that's the only way that they're going to see it, just like we needed Jesus to do for us. And we must accompany such work with the gospel taught in words that they can understand, teaching them the meaning of our doctrine, our words, using their words, because that's what Jesus did for us. Well, the second interpretation, the second way in which God uses every drop of the blood and water from Jesus' side is by bringing into unity the great old covenant redemption sign and the great new covenant redemption sign into one moment. As a national covenant sign, it began at the first Passover in Exodus on the night before all Israel was delivered from Egypt. And the Passover continued through all of the millions of sacrifices made for 1,500 years throughout the Old Testament period. All merely provisional, temporary means of forgiveness. All of the sacrifices, merely a growing stack of IOUs made from God's people, being answered again and again by God's, I know, but you can't pay for it. So I will. And the whole monstrous debt is coming due right at this moment with Jesus on the cross. And the blood dripping from the thorns on Jesus' head and the blood blood that's raining down from the torn ribbons of flesh on his back and is now gushing forth from the spear wound in his side. All of that blood laced with divinity is canceling all the IOUs from the past. And it's calling out, you'll never owe me into the future. And the water takes us from the sign of the old covenant Passover blood to the refreshing, purifying, and thirst-quenching sign of the new, of the new covenant, the promised Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel chapter 36, back in 597 B.C., over 600 years before Jesus' death, while the people of God are in exile, enduring a long forecasted judgment because of their idolatry and their sweltering in the sands and the wastelands of Babylon, God promised that someday He was going to sprinkle their hearts with cold, clean, refreshing water refreshing their thirst and ruining their taste for anything else. It was the water of the promised new covenant, which Jesus promised the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, living water, continually springing up into deep, lasting life. It was the water promised by Jesus in John 7, 37 through 39, a promise made at the end of a great feast when the only kind of thirst that anyone could possibly have would be the thirst of their souls. 
left unquenched by idols of pride and broken relationships and idols of unteachableness and perfectionism and idols of cynicism that feel a lot warmer than trying to embrace hope one more time only to lose it again. This water would quench souls, not by delivering on every unfulfilled dream, but it was going to quench souls by bringing the divine presence of the Holy Spirit. And this presence, while not promising to remove all obstacles or to turn every rainy day into a sunny one, this divine person would promise so much better. Never to thirst again while on a hard journey. Moses knew this thirst-quenching presence. This is why Moses pleads with God after the golden calf incident in Exodus 33, that God must certainly go with the people into the promised land. Moses essentially tells God that he would be willing to trade all the sunny days and all the smooth paths and all the plentiful blessings of the promised land if God would simply be with him. He knew which was better. The third interpretation of the blood and the water points to the church's sacraments. It confirms for us Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and his claim to be the bread of life in John chapter 6. A person must be born of water, in other words, must be born of the Spirit, which water represents and confirms in baptism to enter the kingdom of God. As Jesus tells Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 5, and the one who is truly abiding in Jesus Entering into deep fellowship with him is the one who drinks Jesus' blood and feeds on his flesh in the Lord's Supper, as Jesus calls out in John chapter 6 in his sermon. And all three of these interpretations, all three of these pictures speak of God's efficiency in not wasting anything, but using it all to reveal himself, to reveal his glory and his redemption for us. And they're intimately connected with one another and necessary not just for the right theology and belief of the church, but for our right living as well. Because theology and practice are always connected. As we saw earlier, when we dehumanize Jesus, we retreat from loving others. And when we de-emphasize the bloody sacrifice of the Son of God become human, we don't read the Old and New Testaments in unity with one another seeing Jesus at the center, his blood completing the old, his spirit beginning the new. And when we de-emphasize the humanity of Jesus, we downplay the sacraments like the ancient docetists who rejected the celebration of the sacraments as unimportant. And Jesus, who isn't that physical, who isn't that human, certainly doesn't care that much about physical sacraments. So why should we? And so John, later in his ministry, when writing what we would call his first epistle in chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, he writes, This is he, the Lord Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water, but, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. 
And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. But there's more for us in this passage than even the myriad of signs which show Jesus' Passover sacrifice for his people, which show God's cleansing of us and his forgiveness of us and Christ's righteousness declared over us. And while we will never outgrow those truths, and without believing them and eating them and drinking them, there is no hope for any of us because it is only by grace through faith in those truths that there is salvation. But there's more. And that moreness is the efficiency of God's redemption shown to us in the way that he even uses suffering. That he even uses difficult changes and periods of unwanted transition in our lives to sum up all things truly in Christ. Leaving not a single scrap left over. We worship efficiency in this country. We have to be one of the most efficient cultures ever to exist. We want our businesses and our merchandise and our entertainment and our food made with the most efficiency. We all wish we could probably be a little more efficient. Even those of us who are obsessively, compulsively efficient wish we could be more efficient, sometimes more than everybody else. Some of us live like we think that the Lord will be ready to welcome us into glory, saying, well done, my good and efficient servant. Most of us have just gotten crowns so far, but for you, we have the German Engineering Award of Efficiency. You get to keep it for all eternity. But God, he doesn't measure efficiency by seeing how quickly he can turn out a mediocre product using the least amount of materials. In his redemption for us, God is interested in using all things, even those things that we would never want, that we would never choose, to sanctify us and to display his victory over his enemies and his love for his people. Look again at John 19. Throughout chapter 19 from last week, which Aaron preached for us in this morning, we see John pointing to Jesus as the perfect, righteous sufferer. The perfect fulfillment of all that David pointed to in the Psalms when he would cry out to God and his suffering. In John 19, 24 from last week, the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' garments, fulfilling Psalm twenty-two eighteen when David cries out to God out of similar anguish. We're told at the beginning of our passage this morning that the soldiers did not break Jesus' legs, pointing not only to the fact that he's the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb in whom there was no blemish because his legs weren't even broken, doesn't just point to that, it also points to Psalm 3420 as the righteous sufferer whose bones will not be broken. In other words, all that David and the Old Testament believers had suffered through injustice and persecution and exile 
and the barrenness of their wombs and the destruction of their personal property and their national land, the rape of their daughters and the slaying of their sons in war, much of which came upon them, not just because of the evil of others, but because of their own sin and their own rebellion and their own hard hearts. This ocean of suffering is now being entered into by God himself on the cross in as real a way as it could possibly be experienced so that God himself could really and truly say to his people, I know it hurts. I too have been crushed. I too have cried all your tears and felt the suffocation of your losses. But I'm not just here to empathize. I'm here in the words of the prophet Joel to restore what the locust has eaten. I'm here not to say that suffering and hardship and death are good things. I'm here to change their significance. I'm here to steal their meaning and to relate it all to me so that I can actually redeem it and use it to remake you. And what this does for us is that it changes the way that we see our suffering and the way we see changes that we don't like and we're afraid of and circumstances we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. It helps us to see Jesus as he truly is inside the fire with us. Not yet removing us from it. That will come someday. But finding sufficient grace in him to find comfort and strength to persevere and to go forward with commitment, unafraid in the difficulty. All of us know that this past year has been a hard one for many of us at New St. Peter's, and for lots of reasons, actually. And all of us would probably rank various difficulties differently because we experienced a variety of hardships and even some of the same hardships differently. But none of us would have chosen the hardships of the last year, whether they're the ones we went through corporately or whether they're the ones you went through individually or as a family. You wouldn't have picked them. But you know what? God did. He chose them. He picked them. He chose these hardships not just for us, but for himself. Just like he chose the ultimate suffering of the cross only for himself, he enters into our sufferings now with us. And he chose these things to display his victory over his enemies by showing how he can even take the agonies of our lives to produce beautiful things. And he chose them to use in order to change us because he loves us as individuals and he loves us as a church too much to stop sanctifying us. And sanctification requires change. That's what it is. Whether you're here this morning and you're yearning for something 
or for someone that you desperately want but God has not given or you're aching for something or for someone that God has taken or you have a son or a daughter who isn't listening or a sin pattern that is not going to die it seems or a deep offense that still cuts like a knife or a long-held dream that has finally breathed its last. Jesus doesn't just know about your hardship. At the cross, he entered into it. And he is efficiently working in and through it for your good. Believe him by faith. Amen. Lord Jesus, you are the ultimate righteous sufferer. All the sufferings of the Old Testament endured by your people pointed forward to the ultimate suffering you endured. So that the writer of the Hebrews could say that you truly Lord Jesus, know the sufferings of your children. You experienced them and tasted them. And as a result, you can sympathize. You can empathize. But you can also use those things for our good, for your glory. You win at every moment. You win at every crossroads. You win in every difficulty and in every circumstance. You win. And you share with us your comfort. And you share with us your presence by the Spirit. For you did not leave us alone. We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the encouragement of your gospel. Let us go away comforted this week. And let us comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. Pointing them to you as the one who can truly and ultimately comfort them who has truly and ultimately redeemed them through your cross and through your resurrection. Pray and ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus, to the Father and by the Spirit. Amen.